far as analytics is concerned, uh, as far as where analytics is concerned across actually the entire people profession. So in L&D, in OD, in HR, in the broader scope of HR, uh, we're only at about 20% adoption. So this is not, um, this is not unique as far as uh, your representation in where it is that you're at currently with analytics. So that's, that's cool. And some people go, well, we're late to the game. No, you're actually right on time. You're right on time. So we're going to start off with just to really jazz up a Friday morning. We're going to start off with something super scary. You ready? You ready for super scary? <laughs> now that you've got, there's a screen between you and me. Like I, it can't be that scary because it's virtual. But um, all right. So I, what I'm going to do is I am actually going to bring up a people analyst job description. Are you ready for this? Are you ready to see like what all is involved? Now, this is not at all to suggest that anybody here is necessarily looking to be on the people analyst track, although some of you may be in that position or entertaining moving in the, into that position. But a lot of what we're actually going to talk about today is augmenting our current people practice, augmenting our current learning practice, with data analytics. But what I want to start out with is let's look at something that some people might think of as a job description for some that may sound kind of super scary because it may involve a bunch of stuff that we don't necessarily, doesn't necessarily appeal to us in L&D. But that's what I want to see. That's what I want to, that's what I want to go ahead and find out. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here. And I'm going to bring up this job description. And then what I also want to do is I'm also going to put this job description. Give me one second here. I put the I'm, link in the chat. Oh, is the link in the chat. Oh, great, yeah. Shannon. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. So let's have everybody go ahead and you can, you can view it uh, locally on your machine. Or um, I'm just going to scroll here a bit. And um, you guys tell me if you read it on the shared screen, just put scroll in the chat for me, if you would, please. And I'll go ahead and, and scroll as we need to go. Nice. That's awesome, Don. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you, Michelle. Let me know again when it's time to scroll. And Nancy's like, keep going, keep going. <laughs> That's right. Nancy's our speed reader. Slow down, Nancy. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Becky. Dr. Bob, slow down. Bob, Bob, you're, you owe me a phone call. I know. The note is right here in front of me. I was busy writing checks all week. Oh, whoa. Yeah, I'll tell you why later. All right, how are we doing? Ready for more of the qualifications here? Hey, I have a doctorate in public administration. Does that requirement okay? Uh, you'd have to ask these guys. They're the ones hiring. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. It's a good question. All right.
So we're down into the extra ingredients. Right, <laughs> right, so. And then, uh, and then just looking at the, some of the travel requirements and the flexible remote working. Okay. Ooh, global travel, wow. Yeah, nice. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and ask you in the chat room here, have you all used the annotation tools in Zoom before? Have you played with these? Mm -hmm. Anybody? Annotation no. in Zoom? No, not yet, okay. Simone, yes. Jill, Janice, yes. Excellent. Oh, nice. I and I very clever. All right. There are annotation tools up at the top of the screen here. And what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to scroll us back up to the top of the job description. Uh, and I'm going to go into the uh, accountabilities uh, for a moment here. Uh, let's see. Do I want to go further up? Actually, I'm going to start here with this paragraph. Um, and what I want you to, what I'd like you to do is actually pick your favorite color and then choose that color as part of your annotation tools. And I'd like you to circle, is there anything, circle, underline, point to, anything in the uh, first couple of paragraphs here that sound familiar to you, that sound familiar to you? Okay. I am going to do the same. Okay, so if you're looking to find your annotation tools up at the top of the screen where it says view options, one of those options is annotate and then all of your annotation tools will pop up on your screen just in case you're looking. Thank you, Jill, for putting that in the chat too. Awesome. Great. So already actually a lot of familiarity. I mean, there's familiarity here with at least some of the background that's available here, right? So some people are talking about that they even have familiarity with statistics, um, at least a working level of statistics, some with data and computer science, right? Not as, not as many as perhaps some of these other uh, areas, but psychology, sociology, being able to um, learn from authorities, being able to uh, uh, interdisciplinary, right? Um, being able to connect and have and work on a team with colleagues, uh, build a work environment, great, work with the unexpected, who is not well versed with working with the unexpected at this particular point in time, right? Excellent. Um, Janice, oh, I see, uh, STEM degree, excellent. Okay, so there's already familiarity, I think here, just in this opening paragraph, which what is really a, a, a get your geek on people analytics management job. And Shannon, I'm gonna scroll in just a second here. Would you mind taking a quick screenshot before we move on? Did I lose Shannon? Sorry, I was on mute. There you go, we're, we're good. Okay, cool. So I'm going to go ahead and clear these. 
and then we're going to scroll down and I'm just going to ask you to do the same thing again. Uh, favorite color and in the accountabilities, the same kind of thing. Which of these uh, elements in these different bullet points actually sound familiar to you or are something familiar in your experience? Nice. Awesome. Very cool. Excellent. I just love watching all the annotations come up on the screen. It's like fireworks. Woo, woo, woo. This is awesome. Terrific. Okay, so we've got a lot of talent in this small cohort that we've got together today in this coffee chat, right? A lot of folks um, with uh, experiences and capabilities across a broad spectrum of different areas. And then we've got some folks that have some very uh, uh, targeted um, kind of areas. And we can see that in the different colors that are coming up and then the different layers of colors that are happening here. So Shannon, can we go ahead and grab a quick screenshot of this? We're good. And then, you know, what Shannon just called out in the chat, solving business problems, execution of experiments, being able to experiment, um, understanding human behaviors, supporting junior members, these are critical to any area of people analytics. And when we're talking about people analytics, think of people analytics as, I'm gonna give you a very simple definition. People analytics is about people and work. And the reason why I'm not saying, I'm being very careful with my words there, people analytics is about people and work, not people at work. Because one of the things that we're finding right now, one of the things that we're finding right now is that our remit as learning professionals extends beyond the four walls of the organization. So we're not necessarily only responsible for the people that work for the organizations that we support. We also have a lot of responsibility for people outside of our organizations. So I'm going to ask you in the chat, what do I mean by that? What are what are some groups of people that we now have responsibility for outside of our organizations? And go ahead and put that in the chat. Can you think of groups of people outside of our organizations, in addition to our employees and other workers that we might have responsibility for in supporting? Wanda, absolutely. External customers, absolutely. Michelle, partners, yep. Kristen, the community, exactly. Lauren, suppliers. Contractors and partner vendors. Yeah, exactly. Shareholders, call centers, vendors. We've got all these different stakeholder groups. So when we're talking about people analytics, we're in that broader category. We're talking about being able to apply uh, data analytics to people and work. And it could be that people piece could be any number of different people that we're talking about and different kinds of stakeholder groups. And so then when we think about, when we think about learning analytics, when we think about workplace learning analytics, it's a subset of that broader people analytics umbrella term. So we're going to hear a lot about, and you probably have already heard a lot about 
people analytics and HR analytics and uh, workplace learning analytics and talent analytics and workforce analytics, um, I would say that the people analytics umbrella is the broader category. And then we get into those subsets through different disciplines that focus on specific targeted areas within the people analytics umbrella. Does that make some sense? I'm looking for acknowledgement in the chat room. Does that make some sense or is more clarity there needed? Awesome. Thank you for that. Lawrence, thank you for that. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and clear these and then I'm going to scroll down one more time here. Okay, now I'm going to switch things up a little bit. Um, and I'm going to switch things up a little bit with this qualification section. What I'd like you to do is to go ahead and pick a different color than what you used before. And this time, I want you to go ahead and circle or underscore anything in these qualifications that are unfamiliar, that are not your experience. So we're doing the opposite of what we did before. What are things that are not currently in your experience? Awesome. Great, okay, and I'm seeing a bunch of stuff pop up here. So, all right, some of the terms that are here in the qualifications that have a tendency while you are all working on this, some of the terms that can throw people um, in here are words like, or phrases like multivariate statistics. Does anybody have a definition or can just give us an informal definition or explain what multivariate statistics are? Anybody wanna take a shot at that? either in the chat room or coming up and coming off a of mute to speak? I think, can you hear me? I think it's yes. when you're looking at more than one variable when you're running an experiment. So it's, you know, you're not just running an experiment or something to look at one thing. You have to look at several different um, variables that may play into your insights and decision-making. Beautiful. That was fantastic. Woo! <laughs> that was terrific. That's exactly it, is that there are more than one, there's more than one factor that's usually contributing to some kind of phenomena. And what we're usually looking at, even in learning analytics, is a people-related phenomena. So what are some people-related phenomena that we're looking at? As an example, people-related phenomena could be about performance, right? So we have a population of people who maybe aren't performing at the level that the organization needs them to. And so we've got current state and we've got future state is some degree of performance that we need them to actually achieve. And so we're gonna use learning as an intervention or a suite of interventions in order to help people move from current state of performance to a future higher state of performance. That's people phenomena, right? That's That has to do with people. Now, when we're talking about something like performance, uh, and we're talking about something like learning interventions, learning interventions, or when we even get into training interventions, is that training is a tool that we can only use in order to close gaps in skill and or knowledge. So training would be an appropriate tool to use if part of the root cause, if one of the contributing factors or variables to that underperformance has to do with people lack the skills and the knowledge. But what are some of the other uh, root causes or factors that might be in play with people not performing in the way that we want. And I'm, I'm looking at the chat room here. 
Poor leadership, Nancy. Yep, absolutely. Quarantine. Yep. Management, org structure, home life. Absolutely. Personal issues. That's multivariate. So that's multivariate. And then when we get into multivariate statistics, what we want to know is that of all of those different potential contributing factors, which one of those are most likely leading to the current outcome? So how are those different factors? How is that, how is that multivariate set of factors? How are they weighted so that some may be having more of an impact than others? Is that helpful in understanding what multivariate statistics are? Yeah. We know this stuff. We just don't know some of the names. We just don't know some of the terminology that's used when you get into analytics as a discipline. So if we take another one here, oh, okay, so here we go. Linear and logistical regression. Anybody wanna take a shot? What is linear regression? What is logistical regression? What is regression? I have young nieces, I've seen regression, but I don't think that's what they mean here. Nancy, you used to remember what that was. Shannon, absolutely, yeah, we're lacking the vocabulary. So what is linear regression? No idea? Mm -mm. Okay, again, sounds like a big scary thing. It's actually an analytical approach of actually starting with whatever the end result is and then working backwards in order to be able to figure out what are the variables or factors that are contributing to whatever that current outcome is or what that current result is. So again, if we go back to thinking about the multivariate, it's we're using regression as an analytical approach in order to be able to work backwards from whatever the current state of performance is, and then to work back and actually do the analysis of all the different factors that are potentially contributing to that end result, to work backwards and figure out which one of those are contributing. And what's really super cool is that now, when we're talking about like artificial intelligence, and we're using artificial intelligence in order to do regression, artificial intelligence can actually tell us what the factors are to begin with. So we can, we can do regression sort of manually, of course, using some technology tools, like tools like Excel even, and then even more sophisticated tools than that. But we can do regression ourselves, or we can also use a tool like using artificial intelligence in order to be able to say, okay, here's the end goal, and we want to know what contributed to these particular factors. So I'll give you a, a really clear, what I think is a really clear example. So let's say that we had a situation where we wanted to be able to test people at the end of some kind of uh, training or some kind of learning intervention. Has everybody here ever administered some kind of a quiz or a test before? I'm watching the chat room. Yes, Michelle says yes. Laura says yes, okay. So if we had a propensity of students that performed well on that particular test, and we wanted to know working backwards, what were the factors that contributed 
to their success and their performance on that particular test or that particular quiz. We could use regression in order to do the analysis to figure out, like, what was it? Did they study harder? Did they spend more time on it? Did they have more knowledge, as an example, going into the test or before it was that they even went through the training or the learning intervention? So we can use regression as an, anal as an analysis tool, an analytical tool, in order to be able to figure out those, number one, to identify the factors, and number two, to figure out which one of those factors contributed the most to what uh, gave us that particular result. And then we, is that helpful in understanding what regression is? And we've got so many different tools. We've got so many different tools that we can use now. And then we can also use different types of artificial intelligence that can even automate that process uh, for us. So then the last thing in talking about this here, actually uh, two more things here, um, data modeling. So when we're talking about data modeling, I'm going to take us completely out of learning for a moment and take us into something else uh, and give you a different example that I think will resonate with most everybody on this call, maybe not everybody, but um, those of us that are here in the United States. So here in the United States, if you wanted to buy something using credit, you wanted to use credit or you wanted to take out a loan, like you wanted to buy a home or a commercial building, or you wanted to take out a loan in order to purchase a car, what is the, um, how, how would a bank or, or a lender determine our uh, credit worthiness. What do we what do we use here, Nancy? We use the credit score, right? So here in the United States, we are assigned a credit score, and Maureen, absolutely, it's called FICO. F I C O is the prevailing way that traditional lenders here in the United States determine. Uh, an individual or a business's credit worthiness in order to extend, uh, in order to be able to um, determine if they're going to loan money or not, and at what interest rate. So if you have a better FICO score, then you might get better rates than somebody who has a not so great FICO score, who may not even be approved for that loan in the first place. So it's a FICO score. Okay, let me ask you this. What goes into, what variables go into a FICO score? Like what variables, what bits of information about credit worthiness do people, do lenders take into account? Absolutely. Um, payment history, income, ratio of uh, debt to income, length, length of credit. So we know these things. Okay, perfect. FICO and those factors that go into FICO, that's a data model. That's a data model. And it just says that we want it, they want to be able to produce a score and somehow this combination of factors like uh, you know, length of uh, credit, um, amount of uh, debt, uh, earned income, payment history, all these different factors combined together create a score which can then be used as an indicator of credit worthiness. And putting those factors together in that specific combination, that FICO score to produce that FICO score is the data model. That's a data model. That's all it is. And if you think about it here in the United States, we actually have three different reporting. We have three different uh, reporting organizations, right? So like TransUnion and Experian. And each one of them has a, they all use a FICO score, but their data models and their algorithm 
that's based on those data models are slightly different. And that's why we can see if we pull our individual credit report, we have a uh, slightly different score. We could have a slightly different score with the different reporting agencies. And so that's what's happening with that. So that's multivariate statistical to produce an outcome, a FICO score, that actually means something, right? There's something attached to the FICO score, which is it's supposed to be an indication of credit worthiness or not. And it's using a combination of factors that are weighted. And as a matter of fact, with FICO scores, if you're applying for a loan for a house versus a loan for a car, they might change up how it is that each of those factors is actually weighted depending on the thing that you're applying for credit for. So within the data model, they can actually tweak their algorithm in order to be able to weight those different factors differently to produce a different result because they're trying to determine uh, a, a different interpretation of that. Does that make some sense? It's like the spaghetti model for hurricanes. Yeah. And it's like actually what we've been experiencing with what's going on with the pandemic, right? We've got different organizations that have put together different dashboards that are based on different factors coming together in order to be able to provide some kind of a result. So that's what's happening with analytics. And so the last little bit is down here at the very last bullet point is that there are some tools that we can use to help us be successful in putting together our own data models, being able to do multivariate statistical analysis of things that have to do with the learning function or have to do with our learning solutions or have to do with our populations of people or anything around L&D. And so some of those tools are like Python, which is a programming language, R, which is a, another language that's uh, available that was actually created in order to be able to do quantitative and statistical analysis. And then we've got SAS. Um, so that's software as, uh, well, SAS is, um, uh, again, another way of being able to do the uh, analysis, but it's um, uh, SAS, it's a company. Um, so those are different tools or different packages that you can use in order to be able to amp up your analysis. Is that helpful? Yeah, Zolt, yeah, absolutely. R is mostly used in academia and Python all over. And what we're seeing is actually an awful lot of people in HR are actually moving more towards R than they are necessarily using uh, Python. And part of that is, is because R is actually made for being able to do the analyses. Um, yep, Janice, you can use SPSS. And then there's also actually when you go into a spreadsheet program like Microsoft Excel, there's actually a whole toolkit that's freely available in Excel. You just have to install it. You just have to install it. So we can actually do statistical analysis uh, within Excel today. And especially if you've got Microsoft Excel as part of like an Office 365 or a Microsoft subscription, you can do statistical analysis in Excel today. Uh, and without even having to uh, worry about any of these other um, any of these other packages, and that's available. So it's it's really pretty cool. Okay, all right. So I'm going to go ahead and Shannon, you've got a screenshot of this. I'm going to go ahead and clear the board, and I'm going to stop sharing for a second, and we're going to move on here. As we do that, does anybody have any questions?
I see a hand raised, like a physical I hand raised. I see Nancy. Yeah. So Trish, do you think that people should try this at home? Uh, what do you, uh, like what part of it, Nancy? Like try no, which no. part? I'm, I'm kind of being facetious, but um, <laughs> I, I don't do analytics, but I think I understand, you know, what kinds of decisions go into figuring out what are all your variables, you know, all the upfront stuff. But at least for me personally, and probably for a lot of people, it would be really better to work with people who have those technical skills, you know, collaborate because... I mean, I wouldn't want to, even if I could, use Excel to do, you know, to perform statistics. When I had to do statistics mm -hmm. because I had to in graduate school, you know, that was enough. I absolutely agree with you, Nancy. I absolutely agree because I, okay, so bear with me for one second here because I'm going to use a weird analogy, but let's see if this really resonates. All right, by show of hands on the call here, who likes to bake? Does anybody here like to bake? Okay. Does anybody? I like to eat too. I like to. I like to eat. Yes, absolutely. Myself included. Okay. Does anybody here like to cook? I like to cook, but I hate to bake. Why? Anybody else like me? You like to cook, but you don't like to bake. Why? Well, I hate. What's the I hate following following the recipe as is. I just want to blow up things and see what happens. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And that, Nancy, I think is the division between like, there's some of the, like, I want to get in there and sort of be in the mix and just kind of experiment and like help work with, you know, like the people and the phenomena. And then somebody else who's really more like into the precision and likes to really follow directions closely like a baker, like somebody who bakes. Cause when I go and try and make cookies, like again, my nieces and nephews will tell you like it's a disaster. Cause I just can't, I just can't stick with the direction and I can't tell baking powder from baking soda. And I'm an intelligent person, but I just, my attention span doesn't stay that long. I would rather like do the experimentation. So if we can, it would be great to be able to work with somebody who's got more of those technical skills that likes to do the statistical piece and likes to do sort of the heavy lifting on the quantitative analysis. And we can partner with people in order to be able to do that. And here's kind of the not so secret secret about data analytics applied to people analytics overall. And I mean, I'm talking like the nerdy, nerdy stuff, like what we just looked at is that the nerdy, nerdy stuff is about 20% of any analytics project. 80% is about all the other stuff that has to go into it, right? Because we've got to start with, it's not just about the math and it's not just about the analyses, it's about being able to get to questions of value that make a difference, like that are worth even spending time on. So we don't even necessarily want to go through the exercise of an analytical methodology on things that don't matter. We want to be able to apply that as a tool to things that matter because even once we have the analytical output, what do we need to be able to do with it? What happens? We generate the analytical output and we find statistical significance in whatever kind of variables. And then what? What happens? Nancy, absolutely. Like knowing what the true problem is versus the causes. Yeah, absolutely. So once we have the analytical output and we can pair with people in order to be able to produce that, if we don't feel like that's our thing ourselves, 
then we need to be able to take that and champion that within the organization to either help ourselves and even better others make a people decision based on the analytical output in that to use data informed insights in order to help people make better decisions. But just because you created it doesn't mean that people are necessarily going to use that analytical output. Do I have some people in the room that work in analytics where you're finding that actually the challenge isn't necessarily the math or coming up with the analysis or the analytical output. It's actually getting people to actually use that or trust that information in a way where they actually apply it. Yeah, it's all about the people. So I want to show you something pretty cool. I'm going to show you two things that I think are pretty cool. Uh, let me just switch my, let me switch my screens here. And one is, I am going to take you into, uh, one moment, please. Okay. So one of the projects that I am working on and let me just bring myself back up here. One of the projects that I'm working on is actually with the CIPD um, out of the UK. So the Chartered Institute of Personnel Development, CIPD, they're based out of the UK, and we're actually working on a big analytics uh, program to help develop analytical skills, people analytic skills for people that work in the people profession. Um, and we've got a big training and development online program that's launching uh, later on this year. And one of the things that you can actually go and take a look at is on the CIPD website and on some of their partner sites is you can access resources that are completely free that'll help you get started down this path. So let me introduce you to one that I think is going to help you um, and that is this evidence-based practice uh, and this particular infographic. So when we think about data-informed decisions, helping ourselves make better decisions about our learning function, about our learning solution, about the, the learners themselves, about um, other people that we're working with or other people phenomenon that are happening inside our organizations or outside of our organizations, uh, where does that fit? with our experience and our expertise and the experience and expertise of others that we work with. And we saw in that job description that one of the key things that they were looking for, even in somebody who's like a people analytics manager, is that uh, you need to be able to draw the expertise from other people and be able to contribute your own expertise too. And what's really cool about this is, is that we can put all of that into um, practice because like, as you can see up here at the very top of the screen, when we're talking about an evidence-based practice, we're not just talking about data. Data is just one out of four different forms of evidence that we can use in order to inform our decision-making. So I think one of the things that sometimes we get stuck on is that people think that being able to use data and analytics somehow supersedes our expertise and uh, the experience that we may bring to the decision-making process and that of our stakeholders and our peers, but that's not the case. We can actually use these things in combination. And evidence-based practice is all about this idea of now that we do have more and more data and analytical capability at our disposal, how do we use that in combination with the other three different types of evidence in order to be able to improve our decision-making process? Is this helpful to see an infographic like this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And you know, I like this because this is what we do. Yeah. This is what we do. So when we think about the organization and the stakeholders and the practitioners, specifically those three out of the four, that's where we spend our day to day. You know, so again, I think it's all about recognizing what we are surrounded by, right? Exactly. And honoring what it is that we're already doing and seeing how that already fits into an evidence-based practice. And you're going to see in a moment, there's a lot of overlap in an evidence-based practice. And I would also say in performance consulting, and then also in um, a straight up analytical methodology. And really, what it basically all comes back to is based on scientific method. These are just iterations of scientific method over and over and over again and doing in some cases what we would look at as good research design. And we can get really, really heavy with it or we can get really, really light with it and be able to get really good results. And also while I'm thinking about it here is it's not just about the quantitative analysis qualitative analyses are also hugely important. So if you think about some of the data sets that we have access to, so like what Nancy was pointing out before, there are some things like around the statistics and maybe working with some of the quantitative analysis or statistical analysis that we may not, we can appreciate and we would like to work or partner with somebody else in order to do, may not necessarily float our boats, but I'll tell you what, take a look at qualitative analysis and the tools that you can use in order to analyze content like text. And what do I mean? I mean, things specifically like think about all of the text that you have collected over the years in things like level one evaluation forms or smile sheets, all of those comments, that data is actually hugely valuable. As a matter of fact, the path to predictive analytics is actually through qualitative analysis. We can tell based on people's sentiment, their emotional state. There's a number of things that we can tell, uh, indicators that we can find in the qualitative data that we already have collected and continue to collect. And it could be comments on the discussion board. It could be conversations on the discussion board. It could be comments in a survey. It could be comments that we've collected in our evaluation forms. So we should never discount the use of qualitative data in addition to the quantitative data in order to be able to get some insights that would help us in an evidence-based practice. And you can see here with the um, first three steps out of six, so asking, acquiring, and appraising, so how do we judge the quality of the evidence, right? And think about the evidence that we're using as inputs. So a lot of this is just intentionality. Like how do we be deliberate about what it is that we're doing in our process? And how do we maybe have, um, uh, how do we actually review kind of like how it is that we're making decisions today? And how might we augment and improve our decisions by being able to access or leverage some of these other uh, forms of evidence that are now around us? And I will, let me grab this. So the uh, infographic here, let me pop this into, my camera's in the way of my, let me do this, do, 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 do. Let me stop sharing for one second here, okay. I'm going to pop this into the chat. This is the infographic. So you guys have that. And then let me also give you, there is a whole 
uh, website, microsite with the CIPD that's dedicated with a whole bunch of information about how do you apply evidence-based practice, um, how to apply evidence-based practice to your uh, practice. So in this case, if we're talking about, if we're talking about learning. So now what I also want to show you as another cool tool here is, and just give me one second here. And I will bring this up on the share. And that is an actual analytical uh, framework. So this is the um, six step people analytics framework that we're using at the CIPD that walks you through a recipe, if you will, right? So here are the steps. Here's how you go from a question all the way to uh, validating results in six steps. And again, you're probably, this is gonna be familiar. It's very similar, it, it maps kind of in those six steps in the evidence-based practice, but this is really scientific method. And for those of you that have uh, worked on research design in an academic setting or otherwise, it's gonna really seem familiar to you. But for those of us even in classic uh, L&D, we're gonna see this, um, we've got a lot of these steps. I mean, even if you look at the Addy model, we can, we can map much of what's happening in Addy as what's happening in an analytical methodology. But what's happening today is we've got so much other data that's available as a byproduct of people's daily work, as a byproduct of um, the different devices that people are interacting with, as a byproduct of the different learning modalities that we're using. How might we use this ambient data that's being generated all around of our people with these different devices Again, like comments that are happening in a chat room or comments that are happening on a discussion board, as one example, how might we be able to use that data uh, and analyze those data in a way that would help us actually improve the quality of our decisions? Helpful? Yes, yeah. there, was, there was a question yep. earlier, and it was about how do, how do, one, we've got some people who don't believe the science behind data. And then we've got another question here from Kristen, which is um, there, does, there, there needs to be a balance, you know, so you can get sucked into the rabbit hole of analysis for sure. So how do we know, or do we know, is, is there such a thing as how much data is enough versus what's too much? How do we make sure that we're not overwhelming people who may, and this is my emphasis, how do we make sure that we're not just overwhelming ourselves that are overwhelming others, you know, with data that may or may not matter, but it just seems to matter for us? Yeah, it's a great question. So good enough is good enough, right? You know, so what is the old adage that perfection is the enemy of good? Um, so we're, what we need to remember is that anytime that we're applying an analytical framework within the context of work, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get at a business result and a positive people impact result. It's not an academic exercise, right? We're not trying to create the best algorithm. We're not trying to find all of the factors. We're just trying to find enough that's going to help us uh, address whatever it is that 
is of value to the business and our people to address and then move on from there. So we're looking for the most efficient, lowest cost, least effort, least amount of time to be able to solve for a question that matters. Is that helpful? Yeah. Dr. Bob, I see your hand. Yeah. You know, Trish, something has struck me the last few minutes. Mm. To make all this work, you really have to be superb in your critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what's going on in Great Britain, but I can tell you that in K through 12 and higher ed in the United States, you might have one millionth of 1% of teachers ever addressing it. And I think unless you're super at critical thinking skills, you shouldn't be doing this. Well, I think... Um... I agree, I agree with you in that we need to apply critical thinking skills, but I think we I think we have it within us in order to pull that out. I would say that creativity and that problem solving and looking for an honest answer. One thing that you have not heard me say on this call or previous calls or anywhere is that we're using this as a way to prove that our solution worked. If you're trying to use analytics to prove that the solution that you put together is working, it's off track and you're burning your credibility. What, we're, what we wanna know is we wanna know if it's working or not. And if it's not working, how do we be honest with our stakeholders about that and then give them a plan and ourselves a plan that says, okay, we understand that this particular solution is not working in this particular way. Here's how we're going to address that. Here's how it is that we're going to fix it. And I think, Bob, that's an example of critical thinking and then also being courageous in our professionalism to actually be able to use this as a form of evidence, as a lens that helps us actually improve so that we're driving towards the, we're taking responsibility and we're driving towards the desired results that we want to achieve. And again, perfection is the enemy of good. We're not going to get everybody on the bell curve, no matter how great our analytics or how much quality data we have access to. We're not going to get everybody. We're not going to get everybody on the bell curve, especially the laggards in the back, to be able to be like the high performers, right? We're not going to be able to solve everything with the people solution, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to use this as a tool to make an impact that moves us and our people and our organization that much farther, some percentage that actually has meaningful impact forward. So as an example, if we use this in order to be able to analyze how well our instructional design is performing or how well our instructional de delivery is performing, we could use analytics as a lens of being able to determine what's working and what's not working and then how it is that it, we might fix it. And then we have to own up to that we're not looking for our solutions right out of the gate to be perfect. We're looking at um, being able to do that first hypothesis and bring that to life. And that becomes iteration one. And how might we use analytics in order to be able to improve on that iteration so that we're moving it closer to getting the results that we want. And Shannon, that's the answer to the question is when do you stop? You stop when you are now performing at the level of expectation, right? What is the quality standard 
that you need in the results that you're producing through your interventions, through the function, through your capabilities that's delivering the expected results, then we can stop. We don't need to over-optimize. We don't need to under-optimize. What we're trying to do is we're trying to optimize for that optimal, that sweet spot of performance. Does that make some sense? And we can all contribute to this, right? Like, again, we don't have to necessarily be the ones that are collecting the data or cleaning up the data or analyzing the data or performing the statistics on the data. There are different points. Grab your annotation tools again and your favorite color. Which of these steps resonates with you? Like, if you just focused on one of these steps or two of these steps, like, which ones do you feel like you've already got some mojo around? That's a Rene McClay statement, by the way. Which one of these uh, or a couple of these do you feel like you already have some mojo around? So go ahead and grab your annotation tools and let us know. Where would you focus your efforts? Where, where would you most best contribute? And here's the cool thing is that a lot of the folks where it where um, it really resonates with them to do the data prep and the data capture and doing the analysis and the statistical analysis, the other pieces don't resonate with them. They're not the ones that usually, they don't often come up with the questions. They don't know the questions to necessarily ask. It's you with your domain knowledge that actually contributes because Again, in producing the analytical output without any kind of context and without the ability of being able to champion it and actually use that in order to drive action through decision-making and action, then it's just a wasted exercise. It doesn't matter how good the analytical results are, it just becomes a wasted exercise if we generate it and no one does anything with it. So I call it the bookends. There are the things that we can do upfront in the upstream and I can see a lot of the circles and the stars that are happening there. And then a lot of the stuff that's happening in the actual application of it and bringing it into the organization and helping to influence and persuade and socialize throughout the organization, being able to use this as part of an evidence-based practice. But we don't necessarily have to be the ones that are crunching the numbers. Excellent. Jenna, do you want to grab a screenshot of this? Sure. So we can all play a part. And that's what I'd like people to see. So it would be helpful, to Bob's point, we need the critical thinking skills because part of it, regardless of where it is that we play in these different steps, is that we still need to be able to be judicious about the evidence or the quality of the evidence that we're using. And we need to, because again, that's about credibility. If we're going to bring this into the organization and socialize analytics and analytical output in an organization to help others and ourselves and our teammates to make better decisions, then we have to have some integrity behind that, right? We have to have some credibility. And in order to be able to do that requires the critical thinking skills. And it also requires being numerate on some level. And um, so for those of us that go, you know what, I'm a people person and I don't like math, that's fine. You don't necessarily have to fall in love with math, but fall in love with what math can do to help you serve people better. And again, you don't have to be the brains behind all of the math that's happening and all of the analyses that are happening, but how is it that you might be able to take that and pull that forward? Get somebody else to do the math. <laughs> 
It's yeah. supposed to do the math, right? Yeah. Exactly. So what are so I'm gonna stop sharing for a second here, and I know we've got about five minutes here to go. Yeah, and so, if I may, just real yeah. quick, Trish. Um, I'm gonna share my screen and part of today's um incentive was a giveaway to be with spend some one-on-one -on -one time here with Trish. So I'm gonna share my screen so you guys can enter the raffle while Trish is wrapping up the conversation. Is that cool? Sure. All right. And so here, here we go. What you're doing is if you want to participate, if you, um, if you want to be part of the raffle, which who wouldn't want one-on-one -on -one time with Trish, uh, using your mobile device or uh, on your computer, pin.umu.com, you're going to enter in that pin, click join, enter in your name. Okay, Trish, go ahead. Cool, awesome. I am okay. Okay, and while we're thinking about it, so what are where might we find people who would complement our practice? Who might be um, some of the uh, have more of that um, statistical or quantitative uh, uh, analysis skills, who might we partner with? Like, how might we source people to partner with? Nice. I like that. Looking to recruit. Thanks, Zolt. Thanks, Zolt. Industry coalitions, finance. I love it. I love these ideas. Yeah, where else might you be able to source? Market research, absolutely. I love it. What about external to the organization? Where might you be able to find? Yeah, absolutely, Jill, college statistics class, absolutely. We've got a whole bunch of people that are doing, you know, data science boot camps. You've got um, graduate students. And they are dying in academia for people to help work with their students to give them some real world practice. So that's Becky's husband. I love it. Um, so that's exactly that's exactly it. Like there's any number of people that we can go to internal to our organizations and external to our organizations who could help us and complement our skills and our practice by being able to help perform um, some of those analyses that uh, perhaps are not, um, and not only not necessarily of our highest interest, but maybe not the highest use of our time, right? We don't have to, if we can partner with somebody who can complement those skills, why would we want to spend a whole bunch of focus on that on trying to get ramped up beyond the basics, beyond the fundamentals, um, when it is that we can collaborate with somebody who can bring that, uh, who can bring that talent um, to the table. And so exactly, so you can take a look at, one of the things to take a look at is, and Shannon had mentioned this in some of the communications that went out around this coffee chat beforehand, and that is, um, the what Gartner calls a citizen data scientist. And so Gartner's idea of a citizen data scientist is somebody who has the domain knowledge that provides the context for the 
analyses to work, right? So what is the frame? What is the context with, within that um, those analyses and the statistics could work? Um, and Shannon, may I share the screen one more time here as we, as we close? Are we, I don't want to interrupt your okay. umu. Let's, um, let's see, we are at the top of the hour. So let me go ahead. I'm going to give you guys uh, a few more seconds to get entered, and then we'll go ahead and display the winner. So that way, people who have to drop off exactly right now, they know whether or not they're, they're in it to win it. Okay, so everybody ready? Anybody in the middle of entering their information? Let me know. All right, let's see what we end up with. This is pretty. It's cool, huh? It's yeah. random. Charlene! Yay! Charlene! Congrats, Charlene. Excellent. I will find you and I will get you hooked up with the Trish Yule. Thank you. And thanks, everybody. Thanks for, thank you for entering. Thanks for investing your time today. I'm going to show you just this last thing. And that is just a, uh, a quick image as we wrap. Uh, and we can, Shannon can send out the link to this. But here's actually just an idea of the types of uh, traits of a Gartner citizen data scientist. And so again, I would appeal to you, my peers in learning and development, that we don't have to overnight become math nerds. Again, we should have a working and fundamental understanding. We should um, have a basic understanding of math. We should have a basic understanding of statistics in order to be successful in those partnerships, in working and collaborating with others. But here's how it is that we can add value just as you are today, just as you are today uh, in the different ways that you're already contributing value to the people in the organization. But we have a place and a role as citizen data scientists within analytical methodology. We need them. We need people that can do the higher form of analyses and statistics. They need us because uh, they need good questions to work on. And they also need help in that partnership of being able to take the good work that they do in the analytical output and bring that into the organizations and have that be meaningful and useful and actually be able to help uh, persuade people to action. So again, I so appreciate everybody's time today. Thank you so much. I'm on LinkedIn. It's one of the best ways to go ahead and find me. And I am all over Twitter, goodness knows. And Shannon, thank you so much for having me today on Coffee Chat with Learning Rebels. Yay cake. Thank you. Thank you. And if you can uh, uh, stop sharing your screen. So thank you everyone for joining me today. Uh, next for those of you who are new, our guest features sometimes do have a small charge to them. Our general coffee chats are free and every other Friday. And the next coffee chat is all about communicating change. So that is not this upcoming Friday, but the Friday after. I think that's uh, October the 1st. So be sure to sign up for that. That was in your reminder email that you got for me for today. So I hope to see you all there. And thank you, Trish, for your time. 
I do appreciate it. And it's just, there's just always so much to unpack, isn't it? Data is like an onion. You know, the more we peel back, the more we discover and the more we find. And I think that really, if we could just sharpen our questioning skills and sharpening our observation skills around us, I think that even that would be a, a great improvement in what we do and in the data that we find. So thank you everybody once again for joining me today. So happy Friday, everyone. Yay. 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 Yay.